Let us hear the word of God as we turn to the Gospel according to John. John chapter 5, and we're reading from the first verse. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no way, no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews, that it was Jesus who had made him well. The Lord Jesus always knew the right question to ask. He was a master of asking questions. Often, as the Gospels record, it was in the context of confronting his opponents. And how often with a well-chosen question, Jesus could put Attackers on the defensive, put them on the spot and leave them speechless. How often we read the Saviour's encounters with the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and we think, I wish I could think of questions like that to answer objectors to the gospel. At other times, the questions of the Saviour could be used to help others often to draw a response from them, particularly a response to his claims about himself, so that they are drawn to think, to wonder, to ask about Jesus. And again, he was a master of using questions in that way. Occasionally, Jesus' questions can surprise us. Sometimes, perhaps, we wonder, why is he asking that? It may be on occasion that the answer seems obvious. It may seem almost an unnecessary question or a foolish one. Why is Jesus asking that? And yet the Savior always has a good reason for asking his questions. They are never foolish. They are never out of place. And I want to think this evening of a question that he put to the invalid, to the paralyzed man 
uh, in John chapter 5. It's in verse 6, particularly the question that we're thinking about. I want to consider that whole passage uh, this evening, John 5, from verse 1 through to verse 15. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Really think, what a question to ask a man in that situation. Well, as we look at the question and look at uh, the wider context of the passage, we want to think first of the question. Notice the situation. A little bit of background uh, will help us. We're told about a pool called Bethesda. And a place filled with the desperate, isn't it? You read the account that we have there. Here are the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, people with all kinds of illnesses, disabilities, and those for whom human help is of no avail. These are people really beyond human help. You may be puzzled as you read the passage when you notice that verse 4, well, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 are, certainly in the NIV and in other modern versions, they're in the margin or the foot of the page. And you think, what's going on here? Is a bit of God's word being lost? What's happening here? Well, verse 4 is missing from the best early manuscripts of John's gospel. How uh, they came to be included is an interesting question. We needn't spend time on it uh, this evening. Uh, It's possible that a scribe, as he was transcribing the gospel, uh, scribbled a note in the margin about this account of why the the pool of Bethesda was thought of as a healing place, the, the angel coming to stir the waters and so forth. Uh, And in time, that note in the margin came to be included in the main text of the gospel. That is certainly uh, a possibility. We can't uh, be absolutely sure. But the verse has this account of the angel stirring the waters, and the first person to enter was healed. Now, is that a part of the scriptures? Is it fact, or is it a reflection of popular belief about what happened in the pool Uh, There were certainly certain conditions in the waters of the pool where they would become agitated from time to time. We can't be sure. The interesting thing is when Jesus deals with this man personally, he doesn't discuss the pool or the angel, the healing or anything else. So in a sense, whatever conclusion we come to about verse 4, it's not germane to the point uh, that this record is making. So we can, I think, safely uh, set it to one side. Uh, The Bible, I don't think, gives us uh, a clear verdict uh, on what was happening at the pool. And certainly, Jesus deals with this man in a completely different way. And that's what is significant. There are all these people at the pool, all kinds of uh, serious conditions. Interesting that Jesus focuses on a particular individual. An invalid for 38 years, we're told. Uh, we don't know the background. We don't know the circumstances. Was he bought, brought there every day by friends? Did they just 
bring him when there was a likelihood of the waters being stirred? Was that something regular enough to, to plan to be there? We simply don't know. But for 38 years, it would seem, he's been brought there in the hope of healing. And for 38 years, he's been disappointed. Think of his plight. He tells Jesus in verse 7, I've nobody to help me into the pool. He can't help himself. That's clear. He can do nothing to help himself. What would his state of mind be? Although we're not told, I don't think it's too difficult for us at least to make an intelligent guess as to his state of mind. Here may well be a man who was depressed and downcast all those years of disappointment. Is he on the brink of despair after all those years? Or does he still somehow manage to hope that it might happen for him? Might it be after all uh, those frustrating years he's bitter, uh, he's angry? We can't tell. We're not given uh, an insight into his thinking here. But what is interesting is he's not a man who is looking for Jesus. He's not a man who recognizes Jesus when he stands before him. Uh, There are those you know, of course, in the Gospels who were looking for Jesus, who were hoping for healing, uh, who were focusing on Jesus with eyes of faith. Uh, This man's completely different. Uh, It doesn't seem at this point... Uh, there's a real awareness of who Jesus is or what he might do for him. Very different character from others uh, that we meet in the Gospels. But notice in particular, it is Jesus who puts the focus on this man. He could have dealt with anybody else there at Bethesda, but it's this man that the Savior chooses to deal with, with him rather than any of the others. Because there's a great number, we're told, of disabled people. But this is the one that Jesus is going to deal with individually and personally. And what it tells us is that Jesus takes a sovereign initiative in dealing with the man. He doesn't look for Jesus. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't ask for help. At one level, he's no interest in Jesus. And yet the Lord comes to him. Sovereign initiative. And that is always, of course, the pattern of God's working. He works how and where he wills. Nobody twists God's arm or forces them to take notice of them. The Lord works where and how he wills. This is the God, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.11, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. A sovereign God. He will work out his plan in his way with whomsoever he chooses. And we see that very clearly in how Jesus deals with this man. Sovereign initiative. It is not that this man deserves the Lord's attention. Any more than we deserve 
the Lord's attention when he deals with us graciously and lovingly. The Lord doesn't look at us and think, what fine people. I really must bless them and be good to them. When the Lord looks at us as we are by nature, he sees sinners, people who deserve judgment. And yet graciously he comes and he deals with us. Just as the Savior came and dealt in sovereign graciousness with this man. It's all in the Lord's hands. But what about the question? I haven't forgotten the question. Do you want to get well? What's your response to that question? To some people, it'll seem a very foolish question. You ask a paralyzed man, do you want to get well? What do you think he wants? What do you think his answer to a question like that would be? And yet maybe it isn't as simple as that. Well, indeed it isn't. At one level, of course, Jesus is perhaps simply drawing the man's attention, engaging uh, with him one-to-one, asking him the question, so the man focuses on Jesus. Uh, And often we use questions in that way to focus someone's attention. So even at that level, it isn't a foolish question. You can see a purpose in it. But could it be that there's something deeper behind the question? It's possible, and perhaps you have met people like this, I certainly have. People for whom an illness or a weakness or a disability, something of that nature, becomes their identity. And and that's what draws people's attention to them. And they enjoy that. And they almost become their illness. And then they can be afraid to lose it because who are they if they're not that poor, sick person that everybody attends to? And if they were healed, who would they be? What what would they do? They're afraid to lose that identifying mark. It may seem odd, but it certainly is the case. There are people for whom... An illness or a disability becomes their identity. And so they're afraid to lose it. That's who they are. If they were healed, who would they be? What would they do? And perhaps in that sense, here's a man, 38 years, an invalid. And Jesus is genuinely asking, do you want to get well? If he was healed, who would he be? What would he do? How would his life change. And it could be a frightening prospect in a strange way. We don't know. It's certainly the case as sinners, if we think of the spiritual ailment that infects us as sinners, we become satisfied in the life we have as sinners. It's familiar, we know it. There are elements of it at least that we enjoy and We don't have a desire to change. To think of change again can be a fearful thing. And so perhaps there's a sense in which Jesus would also say to us spiritually, do you want to get well? Do you want your sin dealt with? 
Do you want to be free of it? Do you want to begin this transformation that I will work in your heart and life? It isn't a foolish question. It's a profound question. And spiritually, do you want to get well? You're conscious of sin. Do you want it dealt with? Or are you content to live that way because it's easier, safer, more comfortable, whatever it may be, the question. But of course, this is only the beginning of the account. And we need to think next of the healing. Because Jesus then, having engaged the man's attention in response to his answer, I've nobody to get me into the pool, he's saying essentially, there's nothing I can do, I'm helpless here. Jesus doesn't discuss the pool at all. Notice that he doesn't say, well, you know, I will help you in the next time the water is stirred. Nothing to do with the pool. He's not interested in the pool and the stirring of the waters, however we explain that. But now with sovereign authority, the Lord Jesus issues a command to the man, still a sovereign God working here. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Of course, in the physical level, simply he's commanding the impossible. But it's the Son of God who's issuing the command. The Son of God incarnate tells the man, get up. And that very command is the word of God. It has power to bring about its fulfillment. When Jesus says to the man, get up, he gives him the power, the ability to get up, to respond to the commandment. At one level it's impossible, but with God, of course, it's not impossible. You think of something very similar in John 11 when Jesus says to Lazarus, come out. It's the impossible. He's dead. He can't come. But the command of God enables the response. The paralyzed man can get up. The dead Lazarus can walk out of the tomb because it's God's word that enables the response. In speaking this command, the Lord Jesus conveys healing, doesn't he? You can see it uh, as visibly, as obviously as it could possibly be. The man's able to obey. He's able to get up. Now, he must obey. It's the command of God. He's the responsibility to obey. No denying that. And he does. He picked up his mat and walked. He obeys the word of Jesus. But the reason why he can do that lies with the Lord Jesus. It is not something in the man himself that enables him to do this. It is the Lord's work. At once the man was cured. That's the point. It's Jesus at work. And instantly and completely the man is healed. The healing is God's work. And the miracle is a powerful testimony to the identity of Jesus. Who is this man who says, get up? Now in John's Gospel, not in this chapter, but in other places in John's Gospel, we find the word signs. 
used to refer to Jesus' miracles. They are signs. And this is a sign. Now, what's a sign? A sign points away from itself to something else or to someone else. And the miracles of Jesus as signs point away from the spectacular event to the one who performs it, to Jesus. What we have here is an indication of who Jesus is. We have a powerful demonstration in the healing of this man that Jesus is truly God. And he is the one who transforms lives. Not just physically, as he does at this point with this man, but also spiritually. We have a picture of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to transform. He transforms the life of this paralyzed man. And we have a picture, we have a sign of how he is able to transform sinful men and women at the deepest level spiritually. So we can look at the sign, we can see who Jesus is, and we can realize this one can change the heart. This one can change sinners like you and like me. It is evidence of Jesus' identity. And that is John's point in recording the miracles, that we understand who Jesus truly is. He is the Son of God. He is the Transformer. Now, in this case, the man doesn't even know who Jesus is. It's quite remarkable. We're told in verse 13, he had no idea who Jesus was. Faith will follow God's action. He's not healed because he had powerful faith somewhere. He's not healed because of anything in him. It's simply God's gracious, loving action in Christ to change his life. The Son of God at work. The Son of God transforming. The Son of God giving faith. Because as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, even faith is the gift of God. That's humbling. There's no place for pride. When we think of how the Lord transforms men and women. How I trust the Lord has transformed you. From a sinner deserving judgment to one of his children. It's not due to anything in us. There's no credit to us. It's all the Lord's work and all the praise is his. The healing shows us who Jesus truly is. The Son of God, the Transformer. Great cause for rejoicing. Here is another token of the identity of our Savior and a reminder of his power to remake lives, to remake our lives. And we might think everyone would be delighted with this, that there would be rejoicing all around when this man was healed after 38 years' disability. But we see thirdly here in this account the objections. Some don't share delight in the healing. They're called the Jews in verse 9. In John's gospel, usually the Jews are the leaders, the Jewish authorities, the scribes and Pharisees, the rabbis, and so forth. 
And their one response is to object to what has taken place. It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And rather than rejoicing that the man can walk, their preoccupation is he's working on the Sabbath. He's carrying his mat. He shouldn't be doing that. Never mind how wonderful it is that he can do it. He shouldn't. And the rabbis uh, had identified 39 types of work that shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. They were great for lists. 39 kinds of work. You weren't allowed to harvest and thresh, for example. That's why the, the disciples got into trouble for picking some of the grain and rubbing it in their hands to get rid of the husks. They were reaping and they were threshing. They were breaking the Sabbath. One of the 39 kinds of work. That's their concern. The minutiae of the law. Uh, Their objections surely highlight a perennial danger for religious people. The danger that we don't always avoid of focusing so much on keeping the details of the rules. And the law of God has a vital place in Christian living. I'm not for a moment denying that or minimizing that. God's law is to be kept. And we're to delight in it. But sometimes we can become wrapped up in details and applications of the law. So much that we don't see when God is graciously at work in people's lives. Our focus can become keeping the detailed rules. And some of the rules, like the rules of the scribes and Pharisees, may not actually be scripture at all. They may be human additions and traditions built on top of God's law, but those become more important than the work of grace in the heart and life of a sinner. And so it was for these religious authorities. They're not delighting in the beginning of a a, a renewal in this man. But the concern is he's breaking one of our rules. And it was one of their rules. We need to be aware of missing, of neglecting the beginnings of God's work of grace in the hearts and lives of sinners. It can begin in small ways. But if we can see God at work, it should rejoice our hearts. And we may see people beginning to have an interest in the gospel and moving perhaps towards the Savior. And yet our preoccupation may be with this or that point of their life or conduct that isn't what it ought to be. And we miss what God is doing and focus on these peripheral matters. How we need to pray for discernment, to see God working graciously in sinners. They may have a long road to travel. There may be things about their lives that eventually will have to be changed and put right. But if we focus on those things, we can miss what God is doing and miss the evidences of a work of grace 
There's a warning when we think of these objections that are being raised by the religious leaders. Oh, they were zealous. They were, we trust, sincere in what they were saying, but they were missing God at work because their whole attention was on their own rules and regulations of conduct. We need to be warned. We need to seek discernment to see when God is working and to delight in that and to praise him. The objections. And then the end of the account, we have a curious episode between Jesus and the man as we finish off. And that's the warning that we have here in the final verses. The account ends with another meeting between the man and Jesus. The Lord Jesus now seeks him out to deal further with him because he has a long way to go. He hasn't realized who Jesus is. There's so much he doesn't understand. And the Lord is working with him and helping him to understand what has taken place. There's been a physical transformation in the man. The Lord Jesus now is beginning the work of spiritual transformation. Stop sinning. You might not have expected that. Stop sinning. It reminds us that there is in the Bible the awareness that sometimes, and it is sometimes, not always, sometimes, a connection between sin and sickness. Now, the Bible does not say that if you're, si- if you're sick, you must have sinned. Think of Job. Think of what he went through, an innocent, godly man. But that doesn't take away from the fact that sometimes in the providence of God, sin and sickness are connected. There is that possibility. And it seems that this is the case for this man. The warning of Jesus to him, stop sinning lest something worse may happen. Is he thinking particularly of the eternal consequences of sin at the last day? It may be. That may be the something worse that Jesus is warning him about. Not merely physical ailment, but the final accounting judgment in the presence of God. The warning is given. Physical healing isn't enough. Never is. He needs spiritual transformation He needs salvation. The physical healing will be temporary. Eventually that body would die no matter how fit and well it was at that point. Spiritual transformation is essential. And spiritual transformation is possible by the grace of God. We're not told directly what the man's response was. I think because this account is included in the gospel, we would be right to take from it that the man did respond to Jesus' warning, that he did come to recognize the Savior, not just as someone who could heal his body, but someone who could save him, body and soul. Remember, we thought this morning of how salvation includes body and soul, both of them. And I think, since the account's recorded here, that is a proper conclusion. The man takes the warning. He understands 
He recognizes Jesus. And he does come to experience the spiritual transformation as well as the physical. We see Jesus at the heart of this account. We see Jesus as the Son of God incarnate. We see Jesus as the one with sovereign authority to heal the body and to save sinners. This miracle is a sign, a sign of who he is and what he can do. What he could do for this man 2,000 years ago, what he can do for us today because he's the same almighty Savior. If you've experienced that transformation, if it is underway in your heart and life by God's grace, then praise the Lord. Thank him for what he has begun to do and what he will continue to do until you're in heaven. And if it should be that this evening you don't know Christ and you're not trusting in him, here's an account of who he is, the Son of God, the Transformer. He can change your life. He can transform you from a sinner under God's wrath to being a child of God, destined for glory. We see a great Savior here, a gracious and a sovereign Savior. And all the praise and all the glory in our transformation is due to him. He makes new. May he make each of us new by grace, by his power and his love.